0: Sox on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Sox on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I am joined by our panelists and podcast masters, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how are we doing?
1: I'm just numb. It's just, I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do after the deadline is how I'm doing today. That That's, that's kind of where I'm at with this podcast.
2: Yeah. I spent a lot of time this week looking at uh, baseball reference and fan graphs pages of prospects from other teams. And I, I, while I was doing it, I was thinking to myself like, wow, it really just is 2017 all over again. But like Jordan said, we're kind of numb to it. It is what it is.
0: Literally. The only thing that gets me up every morning is the immaculate grid. Um, the White Sox have failed to do that in a long time. Jordan Lazowski just called me a nerd. So take that (laughs) as you will.
1: I can't get into those. I don't know why. I just can't
0: learn ball. Great to hear. We have a great, quite a bit to cover in the episode, but before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else to get your podcast. Also be sure to check out the website, sockson 35thcom as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at on 35th So we had a great conversation with MLB.com writer and White Sox beat reporter Scott Merkin. Um, We are going to go ahead and jump right into that and uh, really think we got some good talk as far as the trade deadline goes and as far as the future of the Chicago White Sox. It is a pleasure to be joined by MLB, MLB.com writer and White Sox beat reporter, Scott Merkin. Have to imagine it is a busy time for you as we approach the trade deadline, Scott, so we really do appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the show.
3: My pleasure. My pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, great. So just getting right into
2: it, as we are recording this right now, it is July 23rd, which is the anniversary of Mark Burley's perfect game. And just to give you some context, Scott, we were talking a couple weeks ago on this show about what are moments or or characteristics about the white Sox that make us proud to be fans or proud to be you know in any way associated with the organization and i didn't say this at the time but for me one of those moments is i was at the perfect game as a you know 10 year old kid with my dad on a random afternoon and you know looking back on it it was definitely one of the you know probably my favorite moment of my childhood and it really makes me feel close to the organization but uh, i wanted to ask you know you as someone who was covering the team at the time I know uh, you've said you weren't physically there, but what do you remember about the about the the uh, you know the, the time and the reaction and what comes to mind when you think about that game?
3: I have to joke uh, to start off with when you started with naming the date, I thought it was like a deposition to begin. Not that I've ever had one of those, but that's what I felt <laughs> like. Okay, I, I, I have no recollection of the Burley perfect game. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, you, you're you one up on me in terms of perfect game history. The Sox have thrown two of, how many are there? 20 with Hermans this year, 28, 27, somewhere in that range. I could have covered both. I missed them both. On uh, Umber, I was off for the Seattle trip. The kid who was filling in, I forget his name. He's no longer with our company. It was his, like, third day on the job. And this was back in the day when we did, like, if you threw a no-hitter or a perfect game, you did, like, seven stories off it. So it was a lot of work. Now it's basically, you know, normal thing, like two or three, depending on what the catch is. Someone did something offensively. Maybe the catcher has a hook. I remember I did a story on Zach Collins and Rodon threw his. But So I, I wasn't at Umbers. And then for Burleys, I distinctly remember this was a Thursday day game against the Rays, and the next game was the start. It was a rare Friday doubleheader. I don't, it must have been a makeup from an earlier game, and Detroit was in first, and the Sox were like – either they were tied with Detroit going into that series, or they were like a half game back after winning the after the Burley perfect game. So I figured, you know, I'm a Michigan guy. I'm going to go out early to Detroit, enjoy the area a little bit, it's a noon game. If it was a seven o'clock game, I would have stayed and flown flew out, flew out Friday. And here I am as I'm getting, you know, through security. My boss is calling and saying, can you get to the game? You know, he, I, I knew he had a perfect game. Like when I left, it was like through four or five. But I'm like, ah, someone will get a hit. He'll walk someone or something like that. So I have to admit, I'm looking at my phone until I get in and I'm like, man, Burley's a great dude, but I hope he gives up something. Just so I don't miss the perfect game. <laughs> Even if it's a walk, that's fine. And it's just, you know, vintage Burley. I mean, he grabbed the ball. He threw it. He had never thrown to Ramon Castro, who is his catch in that game. Never. Not even in a bullpen. Session. I don't think Castro had been with the team all that long at that point. That was the first time he threw to him and still didn't shake him off the entire game. And how about, you know, in the ninth inning after the amazing catch by Wise, which still is probably the best catch in a no-hitter. I mean, uh, Souza made the great catch right to preserve Zimmerman's no-hitter. That was a great catch. But I don't think it's anything like Dwayne Wise's. Wise's is still is the best I've ever seen. And uh, the Wise catch, second out, he's facing, I think the guy's name was Michelle Hernandez, Michael Hernandez, catcher who had just a cup of coffee with the um, race. Three and one on him. Gets the three-two, throws a change-up on three-two, which shows you how the confidence he has. And then Bartlett grounds out to Ramirez, who I've talked to Ramirez a number of times on that. Ramirez, I guess, was not 100%. And was actually thinking before the play, I hope they don't hit it to me because he didn't feel 100% and he made the play. And one added thing is people to this day, you know, I mean, Hawk is uh, Hawk Harrelson's a Hall of Famer, was recognized with, you know, the the Frick Award. To this day, people say that might be his best broadcast ever. And when you ask him about that, he says he agrees. And he says because it was so personal for him because he loves Burley so much.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean, really anything with Hawk when it comes to the White Sox is personal. But Mark Burley, any time really he was he was on the bump, you could feel that Hawk was a little bit more up for the game because he knew what he was going to get. And that's kind of what we all love about Mark Burley anyway. You always knew what you're going to get out of that guy. Um, my opinion, the hardest working pitcher in the game, in the White Sox history personally. Um, really love Mark Burley and really love this day. Um, obviously, so there's vibe differences here. There's that vibe of that day about what that team had to have been feeling. You know, obviously I did the yearly, had to watch the last, the ninth inning. And you see that entire team come together after that. You know, you see how happy everyone is. Let's compare that to now. What is, what is the vibe around this baseball team? As far as somebody, you know, who does the beat as as you do, Scott, what is the vibe being around this team? um do you feel they are deflated do you feel like they are trying to really kind of pick themselves up for the second half like where do you think this team is right now as uh as a locker room
3: well I think one thing I want to add about Burley is he was bad for a late pregame so like if Ozzy went on pregame and talked like you know where you were up against the first pitch if you got your notes in late like 20 minutes late he'd be in the third or fourth inning pitch timer Burley looks at the pitch timer and it's just like that was my normal start pretty much I mean there was what two Burley Mulder starts that were our sub two, two hours. I was like an hour 49 an hour 53, but he was amazing. Like I, I don't think he gets enough credit just to go off on a tangent. Um, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he did. You know, was it 14 straight years, 15 straight years of 30 starts, double digit victories and 199 innings. And then 14 years of the same thing, but 200 innings, he missed by what a two thirds in his last year. And You know, it's not flashy. I don't think he ever finished above fifth in the Cy Young. One of the best defensive pitchers you'll ever see. You know, maybe not Maddox or Jim Cott, but up there. So just, and just a great clubhouse guy. And a great quote, even though he claims he never liked doing it, but he was, he's a great quote. So, anyways, back to the vibe. Obviously, it's a different thing. It's hard. It's comparing apples and oranges because, you know, that's a great moment. And that team didn't win that in 09. You know, it was a great moment for 07 is a good example. 07, they were 72 and 90 and had some of the great, Greatest individual moments: Tommy hit a walk-off for his 500th. Burley threw a no-hitter. Bobby Jenks had the what? 42 consecutive, 41 consecutive hitters retired, which is tough enough to do as a starter, let alone as a reliever, which is amazing. Although I think uh, Yasmero Petit broke that record as a reliever, also which Burley broke. So obviously, no one's happy right now. There's not one person in that White Sox clubhouse, or that White Sox front office, who's like, "Oh yeah, man, this this is kind of bad, but we'll get him next year." They're they're you know they went into this year at the very least, thinking they would contend for this division title. And they're not close. They're 12 games out after they, you know, lost two in a row where they led late. Today, more than late, they led in the ninth inning with two outs in the ninth. And, you know, it's been a really brutal two years. It really has. It's been as bad a two years as I've seen for this team since I've covered them. You know, last year, to use Rick's quote, kind of back, you know, against him, they they were minor mediocrity. They never were below five under. They never were above five under this year. They're just bad. There's no other way to say it. They're what 19 games, 42 and 61. I think right now with, uh, or maybe, maybe no 45 and 64, whatever they are. They're 19 under. I can't remember their exact record. Um, And, you know, they went into a road trip where even it's a road trip, they probably didn't have much of a chance, but you had to go at least like six and three, seven and two, and they go three and six and one and five after two great wins to close off the Atlanta series. So the vibe is, you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to analyze because like you look at that 05 team, that team was together from the first moment they joined in spring training till the parade, you know, when they were celebrating the championship, but you don't get that every year. It's hard to find that every year. You saw that on the North side in 16, you see that, you know, with the Kansas city teams that lost in game seven and then won the world series. But those are all you know, examples of champions. This team is is fine together. It's just yeah, the vibe is that they're not satisfied, and they know that's you know time if is not has not run out officially, but man, it's it's pretty much running out. You're twelve 12 back with I don't even know how to put, how many to play, but not a lot, and, and you know not even not a, not even twelve back. You know with that much to play, like you're five over, you're nineteen under. So there's a good chance you're not even going to even come close to five hundred this year. So it's just been a really really rough season. It's, it's it's a Sox thing. There's a lot of talent on that team. For some reason, they just can't build. They have trouble building good teams together. They can put the talent in there. It's just the, the team itself just does not mesh for some reason.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is a tale as old as time with the Chicago White Sox, you know, bringing in the big name free agents. Well, big name for the South Side of Chicago and Jerry Reinsdorf, but bringing in significant players and just really not being able to get the most out of it. Yeah, we have 2005, where it was just kind of a hodgepodge of players. They all just kind of came together and made a miraculous run. Yeah, they're they're they're
3: 41. I just figured that's in my head. They're 41 and 60, so they have yeah 61 games left, 12 back. That's you know barely mathematically possible, especially because they're going to lose a tiebreaker to the Twins. They're not making the wild card. I mean, I'm not joking about it. I'm just saying, like, yeah, you're you're going to play out this stretch. You're going to play the next two and two months and two weeks or whatever it is. But, you know, I mean, they're 40, they're 19 under. I mean, it's, you just can't, you know, and the twins have actually started separating themselves a little bit from 500. They're five over. I think the guardians have played a little better. So from now it's just, you know, it, it's it, what happened in 07. I'll give the Sox credit in 07, Kenny and Rick and Jerry and the whole front office. They knew Ozzie too was in that they knew. 07 was kind of lost by like June. They knew they were not going to do anything. So they really started breaking down what they needed to get better in 08. And they went after it that off season and they did win the division in one of the you know, best finishes in the history of their franchise. Unfortunately, they got to the playoffs pretty banged up against a really good Tampa team that went to the world series, but they need to do that now. And I'm sure they've been doing that right along because it's not like this series suddenly made them say, Oh, we're out of it. This series just kind of put, just about closed, nailed the coffin shut. There might be a little glimmer of light still, but that's about it. Not not much of one. So you really got to look towards 24 and beyond, not just one year. You got to look towards the next few years and say, what, you know, this didn't work. This window of contention never really opened. You got two playoff wins out of this whole window of contention so far. You got to be better. You owe it to the fans. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to the organization.
0: Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think you nailed on a lot of really good points there. Um, especially with really the state of this team, you know, I, I think it is it, it is easy to point that the fact that we just got swept by the twins, so this should feel like the the actual like if there was any question that we were gonna sell, this should answer it. But that should have been answered a long time ago. So I completely agree with you on that. Um, I also think it's gonna be really interesting to see what the twins. And uh, Cleveland decides to do, right? Moving head, heading towards the deadline, seeing if they want to improve or not. So, really, the AL Central and seeing what they're going to end up tossing future wise to try to win now, it's going to be really interesting to see, even though I don't see anyone from the Central doing anything in the playoffs. Cleveland's
3: in an interesting position because McKenzie, you know, I'm not sure when he's coming back. Bieber, although they got good news on him, it doesn't sound like anytime soon. I'm not sure where Quantrill is. So, that's, I mean, I know he was hurt. But I'm not sure where his comeback, or has he come back? I haven't paid that close attention. But that's three-fifths of what got them there last year. It was their pitching, really. Pitching in that kind of scrappy baseball, you know, where Quan would get a single, steal second, Rosario would triple, Ramirez would hit a sacrifice flyer, hit one out, and suddenly it's 3 nothing, and they, you don't even think they did all that much. But, you know, that rotation is a huge thing. Now, I get they're getting some good pitching from young guys. Uh, was it Bis- Bisbee? Or, um, and uh, Allen, you know, have pitched well. But – it'll be interesting to see what they can put together when they face the twins head to head and they're, you know, let's face it. We're not calling anything out here. They're not big spenders. So I think if they do add someone, it's going to be more a complimentary piece than like uh, Holy cow. I can't believe they got so-and-so type of thing. Twins could be a little different story. Twins will go out there as the Correa signing shows and, you know, may see this as a chance where, you know, there's no dominant team, right? There's no team in the AL Tampa was for a while, but really isn't right now. Baltimore's very good. Houston, you know, to be the champ, you got to beat the champ, pretty much. Texas is solid, but there's no team that you say, you know, Atlanta probably has that feel. The Dodgers are right there. There's no team in the AL that you say, well, we can't catch them, so why go for it? You know, you, you, I think anyone could win the AL right now.
0: Yeah, no, especially with how stacked the East is as well. They've just been right. kind of beating each other over the head over there. It's going to be interesting to see how many ALT, AL East teams end up making the playoffs. I mean, it feels like Baltimore and uh, Baltimore and Tampa feel pretty strong right now, and the Blue Jays are kind of hanging around right there. Yankees and Boston, who knows what they're going to do. But, um, you know, with everything with everything that's kind of lining up uh, as far as, you know, other teams that are trying to buy, obviously we're on the flip side of that. You know, the White Sox are going to be looking to sell. There's a lot of players, um, you know, especially if we are going to try to do a bit of a reset for next season, who are going to be uh, looking to get on the move here at the deadline and beyond. Um, I've had a little bit of like of a theory of the Sox potentially not shopping some people at the deadline because they kind of want to wait to winter meetings to see what happens there. Potentially get a couple teams in the room to bid against each other on a guy, on a couple guys. But if there was anybody, you know, like the Lucas Chiglios of the world, for example. Who else do you think is in that grouping to really seriously get moved at this deadline? Do you think there's you know, anybody who really has a high market right now? Um, are there any guys that potentially are flying under the radar that could get moved? Who are some guys you think really have a strong chance to get moved at this deadline?
3: Well, I don't know what you guys would think, but I think anyone who where there's low contractual control, right? But see, the thing is, I think more... I don't think they're going to trade guys just to trade guys. That makes no sense. But again, I don't think you're going to get... Blockbuster return. I mean, Lucas is a great guy, has had a great season. He's had one bad season out of the last five, I think, if I'm counting right. And the problem is though, you only get him for what, seven starts, and then he goes to free agency. So there's not going to be one of those things where the team trades for Lucas then announces an extension. i you know, I don't see that happening. So you got to factor that in. You know, Lancelin, you do have an option for next year on him. So maybe that gets you a little more, but he hasn't been, you know, although he talks to us about how good his stuff feels, the bottom line is yes, that's true. And maybe a change of scenery would help him. And also, he's a guy who even in his worst days goes deep in games for you or as deep as starters go now in in games. But, you know, his numbers are not great. I mean, he's given up more home runs than anyone in baseball. He's given up more earned runs, I believe, than anyone in baseball. So I think guys like that in the bullpen, you know, Lopez, who's been very good since he came out of the closers role, he's a free agent to be. Joe Kelly, I believe, has an option. Graveman's got another year, past this year. I think Bummer has at least one option in there. So all those guys, you know, Yasmani Grandal has been excellent the last, you know, since the all-star break really. And he talked to us in, I guess it was Atlanta. Cause I was on vacation the last two series about how, you know, he kind of said, he feels like the more he plays, the better he's going to be. So maybe there's a team like, you know, the Yankees who just lost Trevino or Miami who ended a losing streak today and is right in the thick of the playoff race and could use a veteran presence, a guy who's been in the playoffs seven, of the last eight, eight years so maybe they look at him but I you know the guys who would get the biggest returns obviously are Dylan Cease and Luis Robert you can't trade Luis Robert I mean if you trade Luis Robert you I don't know what you're even saying I'm not even sure if you're even saying like we'll see in three or four years I think you're basically saying this didn't work and we got to start from scratch but I don't think you need to do that you trade Dylan Cease you know looking at what's coming up you know the years you have contractually and, you know, extension possibility with him now being wrapped by Scott Boris. If you look at that, you could get a, a good return from him. But you could also get, as you said, Duke, you could get a good return from him in the offseason if that's what you're looking at, too, with more teams involved. I don't think either of those guys go. So, you know, I forgot Tim Anderson, who's played much better in the second half. And I think, you know, is still a very good player. It's just had an offseason. That happens sometimes. You see that. Kristen Yelich won an MVP and had a couple offseasons, right? And is starting to get back into form. So I don't think it's fair to write Tim off because he struggled this season and they still have an option for him next year. So all those guys, you know, I I don't see the big return guys being traded before August 1st. I just, I just don't think that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I, and I agree with you. And that's, that's kind of uh that's kind of the way that I've kind of talked about it in the last few episodes is really, you know, the guys like Dylan Cease and Luis Robert, if you were even going to entertain those, that's something that you entertain down the road. You don't, you don't try to kind of force a trade out of that. Um, but with a guy like G which I think is a very, very interesting, very interesting guy, especially when you look at the market of what's available right now in the trade deadline, um, do you see Rick maybe holding off on making this trade right away? Do you think he kind of tries to leverage other teams, you know, maybe sees if anybody else gets moved out of the market to where a team like Cincinnati or the Dodgers or the Diamondbacks potentially getting a little bit of a bidding war because that's the only arm that they have available and they really want to add somebody. Um, do you see Rick rushing this process? Or do you think maybe Rick kind of pushes it till maybe the day before the day of the deadline to really kind of see the best value he can get? I, I've equated a couple of times to
3: sort of like owning property. So like if you own property, you set a, a total you want to sell this property, but you usually set it well above what you think it's worth. Right. And I'm not diminishing Lucas's worth. I'm just saying, If you have a property worth $700,000, you're going to ask like a million two for it. And then if someone comes along and says, yeah, we'll give you that, you're like, well, geez, that's great. It's $500,000 more than I asked. Let's sell it right away. But if someone comes along and gives you what is, you know, 500, you're like, and you don't have to sell it. You're like, nah, you know, I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to wait a little bit. And I think that's, you know, not, not to turn Lucas into a piece of property, that's silly, but. I think you know, they, they probably will end up moving Lucas because of the fact that he's going to be a free agent after this year. They certainly would love to have him, love to keep him long-term. But I think you know they won't rush into it unless they get what they want. I, I don't think there's a reason to rush into it unless they get what they want. So, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a reason the trade deadline is the first. It's, what, 4 o'clock Central, I think, on that first. And you can wait up until 3.58 pretty much. I think the Peavy deal went down back when it was 3 o'clock. Like literally at three o'clock, it was sent in by Kenny Williams to make that trade official. So there's no, as Rick would always, you know, Rick's famous line from the winter meetings is there's no extra points done by getting deals done when you're in San Diego or in Las Vegas or in New Orleans or wherever the winter meetings happen to be. It still counts just as much if you make a trade or sign a guy in January. Same thing with Lucas. If you do decide to trade him, if you are trading him, which it looks with the direction the team is going, they're going to. There's no bonus points for announcing it tomorrow versus waiting until August first to see if you really get the deal you want and see, you know, who really wants in on it. So was
0: that the first time or the second time we traded for Jake Peavy that you were referring to?
3: That was well, you only got there's only there was one attempted trade, and I remember that day because quick story, that was the day they lost Bartolo Colon Pitch, and they lost twenty to one to the twins. So <laughs> And that was the day that PV turned down the trade. He turned he had no trade, and he turned, it was like in May. So I went out with a good friend of mine who just happened to be her birthday today. Happy birthday, Beth. And we were out in West Loop. It was, a day, it was a day game. And that was when Kenny had an ownership stake in Market. So I said, let's go over to Market. Kenny said he's over there. I'll warn you ahead of time, he's probably not going to be in a great mood. His team lost 20 to 1. And the guy they were trying to get turned him down for the trade. We went in there, and he was in great spirits. He's like, nah, I left that game. In the fifth, sixth inning, he goes, I don't have to stay and watch that whole thing. I kept it on just to make sure uh, everything, you know, no one was hurt, but I went home and did some work and, you know, we'll go after him around. And then he didn't make a point at that point saying, when I said, well, I thought you'd be, you know, disappointed about Jake turning you down. And he goes, no, he said not yet. And then at the trade deadline, he did say yes. And they got him for, man, I don't think I can remember all. There's three guys, I think, right? It was Parada. And I can't remember the other two guys. I don't know if you guys can remember at that point, but it was, yeah, they got him then. So. They tried twice, got him once.
0: I believe Clayton
1: Richard was, involved I think he in was that in there. yeah, if I remember yeah correctly. I think you're right, and so you've got a really good memory with some of these things. It's actually really funny to listen to just the stories you've <laughs> accumulated over the years. And I should write some of these down and publish them at some point, right? Yeah. I mean, the beat writer tells all. Um, but <laughs> I think, especially as we look towards the trade deadline,, um, you know, we talk about the vibes, we talk about, you know, looking to compete long-term, like you'd said, not just 2024, 2024 right. and beyond. Let, let's briefly look ahead to that because, you know, assuming things go down the way they go down, you know, Lynn likely gets moved. Clevenger has an option, but you're not sure if he's going to, they're going to pick up that option. Giolito, very likely to be traded. And I think,
3: think Clevenger is mutual too, right? So I think either one can, can turn it down.
1: mm mm-hmm. So yep. they're in a situation where, at the end of the day, only two starters are really under contract for next season in Dylan season right. and Michael Kopech. Because of that, what could you see, you know, the rotation looking like heading into next year? Is this something where they view this as a position to say, we'll just fill it internally, see what we've got, and then try again in 2025? Or is this something where, you know, maybe there's a mix of both? They'll get some free agents, they'll do some internal additions, stuff like that. Where, where do you view sort of both this rotation and the entire team as a whole, as they start to think about, you know, once the trade deadline is done, 2024, 2025, and the next time you can really start to compete again.
3: Let me first, I hate leaving unfinished business. It was Dexter Carter, Aaron Parada, Clayton Richard, former Michigan quarterback, and Adam Russell traded to uh, San Diego for PV. And then PV got traded to Boston uh, in the, July 30, 2013, as the part of the first kind of quasi rebuild that brought obviously Al Garcia from Detroit to Chicago. Okay. Now back to your question. You know, the interesting thing was they have Cease, they have Kopech and we thought that, you know, there'd be some form of Garrett crochet as part of the rotation. The problem with Garrett is that, you know, he got hurt after he came back after he did, you know, the hard work to get back from the Tommy John surgery. And now he had, you know, I wasn't on New York or Minnesota because I was on vacation, but I've, you know, seen that he's now his rehab has been temporarily shut down. So does he have near the innings base to even piggyback with someone, even to go joint with someone as part of the rotation next year? I mean, I would think that if he's going to be a starter, he'd almost have to be a starter in the minors, right? If you're going to start him every five days, unless you're going to do what you did with him, you know, hoping that he's fully healthy, what you did with Kopech the year before he joined the rotation, where he pitched out of the bullpen, you know, he made some spot starts in the seven inning double headers. He would go four, I think even five innings. He went one time where you build them up. And then in 25, you can start them, you know, you know, one of the other issues is like, they they talked up Sean Burke and Sean's a good kid. I get a chance to talk to him a little bit in spring training, but he hasn't had a great year in Charlotte. So I don't think you can pencil him in to be ready for next year. So really, you know, Toussaint has looked pretty good. You know, I, I think they're skipping him for the Cubs series. I think they're because of the off day Monday, they're going uh Kopech Lynn, but Toussaint has accounted himself very nicely. I think even, you know, not even because they're major leaguers and they've pitched, you know, they've earned the spot up there. Tanner Banks and Jesse Schultons, who are not guys, I, I should explain when I say even, not guys you say, well, these are part of a rotation when you look at it. They've acquitted themselves pretty well too when they've, getting, they've gotten spot starts. So I don't know if they're in the plans. Put it this way, if, if they go into 2024, if they're not trading Cease and they have Cease, Kopeck and then whatever else, they're going to add starters. They're not just going to go from within the system. Now, are they going to add someone... Four years, 70 million dollars, probably not, unless it's a younger guy who you can, you know, extrapolate out into the into the build-up process when you when they get good again. But you know, you can always find starters that, you know, one year deal, one year deal with an option that can fill out the rotation. Unless I'm missing anyone that you guys can bring up. I I think you can put Tucson in there too, right now, actually. I think as we sit here today, and that may change, he looks like he could be part of the twenty-four rotation as well. So and, and that's pretty much, you know. If, if Lynn doesn't get traded, I guess you have to make a decision on, you know, he has an $18 million option, and I want to say maybe a $1 million buyout. So do you go to him and, you know, I know they like him. I know he's a presence in that clubhouse. I, I, I mentioned this in my newsletter. I mentioned this on radio and TV interviews. You always see players around him in the clubhouse talking to him. You know you see Kevin Sheets over there, Andrew Vaughn, Jake Berger, um, Michael Kopeck. You know, he's, he's kind of a drawing, drawing force over there. So, do you talk to him and say maybe you know after this year you don't bring him back for 18, but you figure out uh, you buy him out and then figure out another deal to bring him back? Everything's up in the air until we see what happens after August 1st. But as of right now, if you're planning on Clevenger not being back and trying to trade Giolito and Lynn, you you're right. You basically have two starters, maybe two and then who knows the last two.
0: Well, you know, and I think that's where it really is a shame that a guy like Davis Martin ended up getting injured the, yes. this season because this Davis really absolutely would have been, been a, there. Yeah. Would have been a big season for him to really show that he has major league stuff because I think he really he showed some really good things last year.
3: I mean, he was great aside
0: from that game 162
3: problem against Minnesota, right? And I think he already was maybe a little I mean, he left sore in that game. So, otherwise he was phenomenal. I mean, we still talk about that start he made, I forgot who was against against San Diego when San Diego was going for the playoff spot on that Friday night in San Diego. And he beat him. He went out there, went toe to toe with whoever was a San Diego starter. I think they won that game two to one. So, I mean, yeah, he was, and I I think it's more like middle of next year, right. That they think he could be. So he's definitely not in the plans yet, but unless there's someone I'm forgetting, but you're right. He would have been in there. That would have been the third starter without even Ben and I, and he would have been the guy holding a rotation spot this whole time during, you know, through these injuries for the starters.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, it really it really is a shame. Um, plus I also think, you know, this could be where it's gonna be nice to examine if we were to get pieces from the G trade, if we sure. were gonna get MLB ready pieces that could potentially be in the rotation next year. It's gonna be really interesting to see how it all plays out. Well, I think I think if you trade if you trade Cease, you
3: gotta get that, right? Would you guys agree? You gotta get something back if you trade Cease that's MLB ready. You can't you can't you can't trade for the future if you're trading a guy that's that good. Not that Giolito and Lynn aren't good they're excellent they're all-stars they're top five top six Cy Young guys but their contracts are different too so if you're trading C so that kind of control you've got to get more than just well we got these four really good guys and they're gonna be ready by 25 26
0: yeah no doubt um Scott it's been great great with great having you join us uh White Sox feet reporter what 21 years give or take
3: 21 years 20 years I keep whenever I look at the screen I keep looking at what a goof I am and then I put Blake Corum up there as a name but you know <laughs> I'm, I'm counting the days. I'm counting the days down to that East Carolina game. Game one. That's going to be an interesting game. That's not a that's not one of those non-conference walkovers. That's a pretty solid team. So we'll see what happens. they should be great this year, though, which is always worrisome when they go in like that.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll see Michigan at the top of the rankings with Notre Dame. I don't know. Maybe. But uh, we'll see what happens up there. Notre Dame got a good quarterback, right? Somehow they uh the, True. The kid Hartman, right?
3: He came in. So, yes, yeah, though
1: I don't they'll, know. They'll lose. I'm time. a believer.
0: all right so so closing you out here scott um i got two two things for you one if you could just plug where we could find you and two and this is a serious question does jim harbaugh when he closes his eyes at night see luke fickle
3: (laughs) luke wait why luke fickle because that was the one guy he uh that was the one guy he beat at ohio state when he when uh when he couldn't oh i see i got it now i'm sorry i forgot that he went he's at wisconsin i should know that because my two younger brothers are Wisconsin grads and aside from when they play Michigan I root for Wisconsin all the time let me go to the first question at Scott Merkin on Twitter and then whitesocks.com, mlb.com and my newsletter which on Tuesday will have a big story I talked to Colson Montgomery the other day so he'll get some stuff from Colson about what's going on presently and then what he sees good good kid really uh really confident kid reminds me a little of you know Tim you know Tim has that same kind of attitude that like hey you can like it or dislike it but you can't beat me when I'm up there. And that's the kind of attitude you need, right, to be successful. You can't go out there thinking, eh, "I might be okay," but yeah, fickle. Because remember, fickle until this last two years was the only guy Harbaugh beat, or not Harbaugh. It was uh, Brady Hoke, beat at Ohio State in like a ten-year run. But uh, Wisconsin should be good, right? And they got a good quarterback too. They got the SMU kid. One of the one of the media relations guys at Wisconsin, uh, the White Sox, is a huge Wisconsin fan, huge Wisconsin fan. So yeah,
0: I'm. I'm actually recording live from Madison right now. Are you really um, big Wisconsin guy? Yeah. I played uh played in the state championship down at Camp Randall when I was in high school. So I'm a Wisconsin guy for life, no doubt. And uh, we're all pretty excited about Luke Fickle up here. So I had to, had to bust you a little bit, but I that's will right. say I prefer Jim Harbaugh over Ryan day, any day of the week.
3: And I prefer the results against Ohio state the last two years over like the past nine or 10. That that's what I will say.
0: That's fair, Scott Merkin. It's been great having you on buddy. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me
3: guys. I appreciate it. You guys do good work. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks Scott. Go Irish.
0: So we just had a great conversation with Scott Merkin, um, covered quite a bit about the trade deadline. Um, Honestly, I think the Jake Peavy story and kind of the madness that came, came about behind that was probably my favorite story that he told. But uh, some pretty good information. Once again, Scott Merkin, I uh, really appreciate having you on, bud. Um, we talked a little bit about Lucas Giolito, but he did bring something up that I think is uh, a very polarizing type of conversation right now within the fan base and something that I think we should talk about. Um, Tim Anderson. Pretty polarizing pretty polarizing dude in Chicago right now. You know, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, he's a guy that was universally loved as – you know, as recent as last off season, you know what I mean? Or, uh, you know, the season heading into 2022, everybody was still really high on Tim Anderson. That was our guy. That was the leader of our franchise. And that's kind of turned a little bit, especially with how much he has struggled in the time since, Um, you know, obviously he is a name that's been fished out as far as the trade deadline goes. And um, there has really been a lot of discussions recently where, do we want to trade Tim Anderson? You know, it is is Tim kind of playing his way back onto this team, is Tim just playing well to get traded? You know, there's there's been a lot of spin zone, there's been a lot of takes on both sides of it. Um I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to hear have to say, but um bef- just right before we jump in, I do want to bring up that Tim Anderson over the last 4 days um batting 324, has a 390 on-base percentage, 351 slug, which is obviously going to be low cuz he just flat out has not not hit home runs there's no denying that um a 742 OPS with even a 958 OPS the last seven days in particular um Nick I'll let you start right off with this um how do you feel about Tim Anderson currently and is is he somebody that either a you want to see get traded now or do you want to see him get traded at all how do you feel about Tim Anderson currently
2: yeah I mean in terms of do I want him to get traded it's tough because I think that I'll kind of invoke uh Scott Merkin's analogy that he gave about, like, the valuation of an asset. And, again, also, I do what he said. It's difficult to talk about human beings as, as assets. But, you know, for the sake of the analogy, we'll say that the White Sox have valued Tim Anderson at, you know, X amount, probably a lot higher than what uh, the general, you know, baseball team hasn't valued at right now just because the White Sox know what he's capable of and have seen him do it in the past, you know, as recently as even early last season. So the way I look at it is, if a team is willing to pay that price for Tim Anderson, the price that assumes that the version we saw from 2019 to, you know, midway through 2022 is still in there, then I'm okay with trading him. But if you're trading him and you're kind of getting a depressed price because he hasn't been playing well this year, is that from the last, you know, week or so, then that's really, I don't know if that's worth it, especially when Colson Montgomery, as great as he's been, who knows if he'll be ready uh, next year, and if he is, he has back issues, so you can't just pencil him in and forget about it. You always have to have contingencies. I mean, really, ideally, I would like Tim Anderson to be the shortstop of the White Sox for the next decade, but both from a contract standpoint and from now a performance standpoint, that seems very unlikely. So it all comes down to what you're offered for him. I would definitely shop him, but only really pull the trigger if you're getting something that aligns with his value heading into the season. If that makes sense, otherwise you might as well just keep him, pick up the option, and hope he rebounds next year.
1: And that's where I think, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the argument on this, Nick. I think that is where fans are missing the mark. It's not just Sox fans. I'm sure all baseball fans do it. Where they're like, get Tim Anderson off my team. But Los Angeles Dodgers give me a top 40 prospect in baseball to do it. It's like, no, that's not how this works. If you want him gone so bad, it's because he's not playing up to the value that he theoretically should have with an option year that's only 14 million considering what shortstops get on the market right now like you want him gone cuz he sucks right now but you want to get paid for him like he doesn't suck that's not how this works and no team's going to go into negotiations and be like oh well he had a, he's had a good week um so let's pay Dalton Rushing for example it's kind of like the same thing when Giolito had his uh Bad start right out of the All-Star break. I was like, oh, he just tanked his value. Teams don't just look at one little stretch and make their valuations off of that. They may try and use it against you in um, in negotiations, but what are the, what, what's the GM going to say? Oh, yeah, you're right, because he had that one bad inning coming back after an 11-day break after the All-Star break. Oh, yeah, you're right. We'll take way less than we deserve for him. Like the diff- But the difference with Anderson is, oh, yeah, he's had a bad almost year now. At this point, if you factor in 2022, do I want to trade him right now? No, I don't think they're going to get what they should get for him. Frankly, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Nick. Like, people want to get rid of him because he's not been playing well, but you're not going to get something of value for him right now.
0: Well, I think, and my, my argument's kind of, kind of two, twofold here. So I think Tim, and I've said this, you know, so I'm not going to divulge too deep into this because I've said it on recent podcasts. I've said it on Twitter, said it to really anybody that'll listen to me. I don't want to trade Tim Anderson at the deadline. I believe I even said it in the conversation with Scott Merkin. I don't want to trade him at the deadline because I don't think, like you guys say, you're going to get the value for him that you, that you think you're going to get. You know, Tim's had a rough go this season. There is no way around that. Um, I do think it is very promising what he has shown us recently, and it kind of is proving something that I've kind of had the idea of in my head, you know, idea of the whole time is Tim Anderson's still there. That's still Tim Anderson. Okay. He didn't just magically forget, forget how to play baseball. You know, I've seen a lot of guys really fall off from where they were in a quick way. You know, I think, uh, I think Christian Yelich was somebody that was brought up in our conversation with Scott as well, where We just saw the last two seasons that Christian Yelich had, and now Christian Yelich is just looks like looks like old Christian Yelich. He looks like a genuine one of the best hitters in baseball with his approach, everything across the board. And he looks like somebody that's playing very confident. Tim's still that guy, you know. Tim hasn't had this crazy fall off. It's you know the home runs, yes, that's concerning, but he doesn't seem like he's been hitting baseballs in the air. You know, it it seems like he's been trying to really hit anything because he's trying to work himself out of a rut. You know, and I think you even saw that with the Yelich where his home run numbers dipped because he just flat out couldn't hit anything, you know. So I think Tim's still in there. And I think your best bet to find that value is going to wait to the winter winter meetings because you will be able to show other teams, hey, while he has played, he did not play good last year. There were stints there where you could really see that that was still the guy that he is. You know, he still has the talent to be able to do that. On the flip side of that, you know, as you brought up, Nick, is this a guy that we think we're going to be able to get another contract with? Um, Is this a guy that we think we're going to be able to lock in? That's very difficult to say, you know, because if Tim does start playing very well, he's going to work himself into another contract. And as we had heard on a podcast he had done earlier this year that bugged a lot of people, he is thinking about that payday. He is, as, as he should be, because the amount of good baseball he's given us up to this point, and the amount of money that we've paid him relative to that, he should be thinking about getting paid that type of money. Now, is that going to equate to him getting great value on the open market by winter meetings? Maybe, maybe not. You know, Maybe a team sees that value in him and wants to take that chance on him. But honestly, rolling into next year with Tim Anderson, um, with the scenario that you brought up, Nick, with Colson Montgomery potentially not being ready, um, could that be a deadline move next year? You know, maybe maybe that works better for everybody. Maybe we give Tim a half a season to kind of figure it out. Or maybe we go to Tim Anderson in the offseason and say, do you want to be with this team? Do we want to work something out? Do you want to help us find a way out of this to where we can get you to a team that you want to play on and potentially sign a contract with? So I think there's a lot of ways to deal with the Tim Anderson situation. And if you aren't a Tim Anderson fan listening to this, that's totally fine. And I understand. But um, I really do think there is a better scenario for Tim Anderson moving forward outside of forcing a trade at this current deadline.
1: And I think it all sounded like we, we all had our, I won't say we all, a lot of us who understand Tim Anderson's probably not the future shortstop here had the idea like, Hey, trade him at this. This was early season. Trade him this at this deadline. If need be Montgomery's probably playing great in the minors So you feel more confident about, hey, maybe he gets some seasoning. He's ready to start next year. Or at the very least, he's ready to go by next year's uh, deadline. That's not the plan anymore. That's not the path. Now you got to readjust. And I think fans are still thinking like that. Like, oh, we'll get this top prospect, and then we'll have Montgomery come up, and it'll all be great. I just don't think that's the reality of the situation. And Duke, I think you put together a very nuanced argument, basically saying, yeah, that's not the case in front of the White Sox right now.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think even just to add a little more, when you talk about what will teams give for him right now, I think all of us seem to be in agreement that you're not going to get what you would have gotten you know, a few months ago, but maybe just for the devil's advocate a bit here. There's a, a charitable way of looking at it, which is that in 2022 Tim Anderson for the first couple of months was playing better than ever. Like he was saying 360. And then he got hurt against I think late May against the Cubs and he was kind of never the same after that injury. Then this year, uh 2023, the first two or three weeks of the season, he once again looks like normal Tim Anderson. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember everyone saying earlier in the year that, like, hey, watch out if the White Sox take off. Tim Anderson is looking like an early, you know, MVP candidate, the way he's stealing bases and, you know, slashing the ball over the field. And then not to keep harping on this, I'm sure he's a great guy, but Hanser Alberto uh making that throw in Minnesota that led to Anderson getting injured and missing all that time. Ever since then, Tim once again never really looked the same, and and you know credit to him for rushing back you know really quickly relative to the injury and getting right back into the games. But it's obvious, I remember watching that he wasn't himself. So maybe that's the messaging the White Sox could go for: like, hey, look at how good he is when he's healthy, and finally he's healthy again as of the All Star break. Like, I don't know if teams would really buy that, but there is something to it. because I feel like people kind of forget how good Anderson was looking and it kind of, kind of like Moncada in the first week he also looked good, but it was such a short amount of baseball that you can't really say that, you know, it's one thing or the other, but it's just something to mention because I'm, I'm sure that uh, maybe some teams are looking at that and, and thinking there's something to it.
0: Well, you know, and I think, uh, I think you touched on something really important and as far as, as far as his injury history, you know, this is something where Tim feels like he did kind of rush back a little bit. And, um, I don't think it's any, any particular uh, coincidence that the Chicago White Sox, over the last couple of years, been pretty pretty lax about letting guys play injured and let them come back a little bit sooner than they probably should, which honestly brings us into a little bit about uh, something else we wanted to talk about with Pedro Grafal and the recent comments that he has made, uh, particularly in uh, reference to Aloy Jimenez. Jordan, I know you... Had a great time on the bird app, what will soon be the X app earlier today or earlier as of recording this episode regarding Pedro Falls comments uh, with Aloy Jimenez. But I do think it is interesting and I think it is important to bring up with uh, Tim Anderson's trade or trade value is, you know, teams probably don't know exactly what his bill of health is, you know, especially with the White Sox in general. I, I know if I was a uh, a GM or a president of baseball ops trying to do a deal with the White Sox, I'm looking for a full medical history. I want, I want pie charts. I want every single potential thing I could see about a certain player um, because the White Sox have been pretty hush-hush as far as injuries. Um, there are a lot of situations where guys do not go on IL for the sake of just sitting on the bench for a couple days. And, uh, you know, I know Pedro Graffal really had some crazy comments in reference to this a couple days ago. Um, Jordan, I'll let you kind of take the top on this
1: one. Uh, Pedro Graffal, with these Oloy Jimenez comments, can you maybe fill us in a little bit? So first thing, I might have to take back my nerd comment for you earlier because real nerds know we don't like pie charts. So that being said, um, as you roll your eyes, um, the Graffal stuff is interesting. The White Sox injury injury whatever you want to call it like history I guess it's odd to me like there there are parts of it I understand like if a if player is going to be out for three or four days why would you put him on the aisle for 10 because that's six days that you're just playing without them and you don't have to like if you know a player is going to be out for two weeks don't wait the three or four days and then put them out like I think that's what gets White Sox fans aggravated to uh for good reason like why did you wait three or four days and then put them on the il like make that decision the first day of the injury where you're gonna land on this if you say yep it's gonna be a couple days whatever the stuff with but the, the idea of players playing less than 100 percent, I, I really don't think fans get that it is mid-july these guys have played 100 games already nobody's 100%. If you're playing with a team full of guys who are 100%, you're taking the reserves from the Birmingham Barons, and that's your team right now. Like, that is who's healthy. It's the guys who are barely playing down in the minors. Nobody's healthy right now. It's varying degrees of health. So with the Jimenez stuff, it's like, it seems as if Grafal has made the assessment working with Jimenez that, hey, we are going to take this risk. You are healthy enough to play. You tell me you're healthy enough. I deem you healthy enough. We're making that risk assessment. Where I have the issue is where people are like, these games don't mean anything. You know, why are they pushing it when they don't have to? The manager thinks these games are important, though. Like, no manager is going to be like, yeah, actually, we're just phoning this in. Season's over. We're kind of looking to 2024, and we're going to play it like that. No man. If you're looking for a manager to do that, you're not going to find one anywhere at any level. Nobody is just saying this game doesn't mean anything. So we're going to sit guys like that just doesn't happen. And it shouldn't. I I truly had no issues with Grafal's comments about how he's handling Jimenez's injuries and calling games must win. Like, yeah, the manager should think this is a must win game. So the the entire injury is it's so complicated trying to evaluate it from the Sox perspective because we don't have all the information. The the most frustrating one, the one I agree with most for fans, is when the Sox sit someone for three or four days and then put them on the IL. That is meaning that that is wasted time to me.
2: Yeah, I think when you're talking about the fan reaction too, one thing that's important to note is the White Sox are not the only team that does this. And to give you an exact example, literally today or some days game against the Twins, there was that really weird uh, bunt by Joey Gallo in extra innings. And you know, I mean, it was terrible for a lot of reasons. But according to Twins fans and you know, Twins beat writers and whatnot, he has an eye issue. I think he had pink eye recently, and apparently he's not seeing well enough to feel comfortable like fully taking at bats. Who's basically a decoy, either going to bunt or just take every pitch. Which is like, okay, I get it. But also, if I were a Twins fan, my response would be, why not, you know, wisely on the roster? Why don't you IL him if he literally can't take full swings, et cetera? So other teams do it too. Like it's not, ju- it's not uniquely a White Sox thing. Where I do agree more with the fans on this, and I'll be curious to know how you guys feel about this, is with Eloy Jimenez, I mean, he homered on Sunday. Like, like clearly he's helping the lineup when he's in. But the Andrew Vaughn one, which is the other ongoing, you know, use of the bench spot, that one I don't get as much. It's, it's, this guy's, like, barely even able to walk, and he's already been out for four or five days. And you're like, oh, maybe he'll be back on Tuesday against the Cubs. Like, at that point, why not just retroactively IL him and, and hope that it heals? I don't want him playing on Tuesday if he you know, it's still the only effectiveness of this. I want to risk making, I know it's a bone bruise and that technically can't get like worse. Like it's a muscle strain, but still it's not good to, to play through it. Especially if you're someone
1: like Vaughn who hasn't been particularly like amazing lately. I don't, I don't understand that one at all. See, that's one where it's like, he's in a boot. He's most comfortable in a boot. Why are you even on this roster? I completely agree with that. one. Jimenez, it seems like from all angles, it seems like he just has sore legs. Like, if it's nothing more than that, everyone's like, oh, you don't want to risk like this uh, horrible injury to this guy. What is the horrible injury? Like like this altering injury that we're risking with Jimenez, like a hamstring strain, something like that. It's like, And you don't want to undercut the, the severity of injuries, but it's like, again, it's the idea of a risk assessment. It's like, Andrew Vaughn, yes, this bone bruise, it may not get worse, but it's like, he needs to be in a boot that's a little bit different than Jimena's having some sore legs. I I, I know I'm not undercutting the severity of the injury, but I'm more so saying take this step back and understand what is the real risk assessment here? People are like, Oh, Jordan, you're just being um, different for clicks. Like if you've ever accused me of that, you know, nothing about me. And like, I take offense to that almost. Um, But more importantly, it's like, I I assess the, the risk behind it. And don't just get mad because that's what you think is going to get the best reaction on Twitter or that's going to get you the most likes. Like, have a nuanced argument behind it other than just being like, oh, the Sox can't do anything right. Like, do they do a lot of things right? No. But is every situation this should be treated the same? Absolutely not. And I think everyone's looking at every injury situation as it's one size fits all. If you're hurt, stay out of the lineup and go on the I.L. That's not how it works, especially when they're a hundred games into this season. Nobody's a hundred percent right now. They might tell you they are. They're not. If you're going to try and be, Oh, you have to be a hundred percent healthy. Have fun going down to Birmingham and bringing everyone up. I,
0: I think you guys both make some very good points in regards to this genuinely, because this is very much against what I'm going to see on my timeline every single day in regards to something like this, or where I'm kind of surprised as a big Aloy Jimenez guy, People are complaining about Aloy toughing it out. They're complaining about Aloy playing through an injury. This, this is this is the guy that's so soft. He's everyone complains about Aloy Jimenez all the time. I can't believe that people are actually complaining about this guy being like, you know what? Yeah, I'm not feeling great, but I'm still going to be in the lineup. You know, I'll still grab a bat because I know I bring value to the team. You know, that, that's not just a Graffal thing. That's he has to go to Aloy and be like, hey, are you willing to do this? And Aloy obviously is. Uh, he's calling, you know, he's, he's answering the call. And I don't think Aloy gets enough appreciation for that. That That's where I stand on that because, you know, Grafal obviously has to be the guy that, you know, answer the tough questions and, you know, get asked why Aloy Jimenez is out there, but Aloy obviously wants to be out there. And, you know, for the whole Aloy isn't that tough crowd kind of, kind of really hurts your argument.
1: I think it's just a lot of just, fake outrage over just being mad about this team in general and i and when we jumped on to start the podcast i'm like yeah i'm just in a bad mood today i don't know what it is so it's like it's like i get the frustration around this team i really do like grafal's comment about the whole boom boxing whatever that was where it's like i got what he was saying like he said it horribly and it's gonna be on t-shirts and memes it was just the games he's moving too fast for the game he has to slow the game down he wants to play it It's not a lower intensity level. Just slow the game down. Don't be so amped up all the time. Like, I didn't think it was that difficult to understand. It was probably the worst way to say it. But I don't think the underlying concept, if you're willing to take that step back from that anger you feel and honestly assess a situation, I don't think it was that bad of a comment. It was horribly worded. But the idea that the game's moving too fast for a rookie is not, it's like, that's why I have such issues with some of the oh, get rid of Grafal after a year, or this should be a one-and-done guy. It's like, I I wouldn't care one way or another. Don't get this as me defending him. I would not care if they got rid of him after this year. But at the end of the day, it's like, a first-year manager is acting like a first-year manager. Jeez, sky is blue. What what did we expect at a certain point, too? It's like, I, I think the frustrations boil over into just not fully encompassing the entire picture of what you're looking at situation to situation.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I feel the same way. Um, There are so many things to be upset about with this team. Don't nitpick actually focus on like the big glaring ones that should be pointed out. Let's not just get upset on a day-to-day basis because you know, a manager says a corny line. Honestly, I took that line as, you know, and this is me speaking football talk. It's like a defensive end who just rushes the pasture relentlessly every single play in, in theory, that's awesome. You know, it shows he's got some piss and vinegar. Great. He wants to go sack the quarterback when the running back runs right between him and the defensive tackle and uh, gashes him for 20 yards. Cause he was too focused on the quarterback. Yeah, it's not great. And that's kind of what Oscar Colas has done, you know, on the major league roster. He's a guy who really is trying too hard to make things happen. And, you love to see it as a coach, but at a certain point you gotta be able to, you know, put them aside and be like, dude, listen, we think you're talented. That's why you're here. We just want you to do your thing, man. Like you you're good. Don't overthink it. Don't overdo it. You're either gonna injure yourself or you're gonna make a mistake. Like just play freely. Do not try to don't try to win the game with one swing of the bat. Don't try to record two outs when you're only catching one. Like it it's baseball. Like it's gonna take time to get to the finish. Don't try to rush it because you're just gonna you're just gonna throw something off or you're just
1: gonna make a mistake. Play your game is essentially what it comes down to. Don't try and play a game that's not yours. And I think, you know, it, tying it all together, it's like it hasn't been a great week for Grafal and his headlines. It truly has not been. But and I think the full evaluation of Raffal is gonna come at the end of this year for like what it looks like heading into next year. I just don't see this week's worth of comments being like this is why he should be one and done. I can't believe we hired him. I want Ricky back. I just I just have not gotten that sense from what he said. If you want to talk about the the bullpen management, I think that's absolutely something you you know, you do a revisionist history at the end of the season. But man, I just didn't get the outrage from some of this. I get why people are upset and I get it's frustrating to have these guys constantly injured. But I just don't get, like, the full outrage. And maybe, and again, don't accuse me of doing this for clicks. You guys are just, some of you people are ridiculous, man. It is hilarious sometimes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think just to throw one more analogy in there, going from Tony LaRusso to Pedro LaFle, for me to bring basketball in there, as a Volsman, it's kind of like how they went from Jim Boylan to, uh, to Billy Donovan. And by that, I mean LaRusso and Boylan are both kind of considered like a joke throughout the respective leagues at that point in their careers. And now Billy Donovan, at least as like a real you know professional human being, maybe not the greatest coach, but he at least, you know, you can at least respect him as a person. I don't love him as a coach, but I think he kind of started getting a lot of flack lately, even though a lot of it was just the roster construction and the fact that they never shoot three-pointers. And that's kind of happening with the White Sox where we're full getting a lot of flack, even though. He's he deserves some of it like Donovan does, but the roster construction also is very uh, worthy of criticism and, you know, they don't play well enough. And whether, whether that's completely his fault or the player's fault, it's a debate we've been having for, you know, two years now with Larusa, also. But it's, it's a parallel that I'm seeing where I just think White Sox fans are understandably jaded from their last managers. And now we're just, you know, lashing out against the new one, even though part of it's just problems that already existed.
1: And I get it. Like I said, I get it. I truly do get it. Like I get why people are mad. I am mad too. But I, I there are just other, certain things that are going to bother me and certain things are, that are not. And I think it's very easy to just take the step back from that anger. I'm not telling you how to fan, because I know I'll get accused of that too. Take that step back from the anger and be like, hmm, what could he really be trying to say right now? Instead of being like, oh, Griffal sucks, you should be one and done and getting your 100 likes on. Like if you want to do that, go ahead. But then like understand you're missing some of the nuance of, of what's going on here. Well, me personally,
0: Jordan, I like being gatekeeped in the white Sox fan base by people who have larger Twitter followings than me. Um, Jordan Lazowski. Uh, so I very much appreciate you telling me how to fan. You are um, the
1: worst. You are the worst. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, But I think with all of that complaining out of the way, Regardless, um, you know, like I said, there's a lot of things to complain about with this team. Um, just just be a little bit more pointed. Make make sure there is something behind the argument. Don't just get mad at day-to-day comments. Like, Pedro Grafal is contractually obligated to go out there and answer questions every freaking day there's a baseball game. He's he's not necessarily a wordsmith from what we've gathered so far. He's just going out there and he's trying to get a comment on the paper so he can fill his obligations and then get back to the fact that his team is not winning baseball games. And I think that's where his main focus is. So as somebody who does get very annoyed by the argument of Pedro Gafal being a first-year manager, I'm willing to let this play out for right now. He doesn't do anything that offends me horribly to the point where we need to get rid of him. Um, sometimes there's accountability things, but as you know, that's something I will let continue to move forward because this is an incredibly difficult situation to jump into no matter who you were going to be. But, um, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for this week's episode of the socks on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else to get your podcasts. Also be sure to check out the website at socks on 35th.com as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at socks on 35th.com or at Sox on 35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. I was really killing it right there for a second, just like our Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We'll be back next week as we cover another exciting week of White Sox baseball. Thank you, and go Sox.
1: If this is the end, thanks for everything, Gio. Go Sox. Go Sox.